Wild Lives by Phonographic. Hey, I'm Rochelle and welcome to the Wild Lives podcast. Today we're speaking to Tim Faulkner, who is the president of Aussie Ark. Based in New South Wales, Aussie Ark is a wildlife preservation project that's working to save seven species of endangered animals, including the Tassie Devil. And it's hoped that by creating an insurance population of these Aussie icons, we can help them outrun extinction. Today, the Tasmanian Devil is fighting for its life. Experts say that Australia has the worst mammalian extinction rates in the world. For example, the thylacine, or Tasmanian tiger, was hunted to extinction by 1936. Its nearest relative, the Tasmanian devil, was rendered extinct more than 3,000 years ago on mainland Australia. But its population was relatively stable in Tasmania up until the 1800s, when the island's farmers started culling them. Even though this charismatic little devil survived this attempt at eradication, their biggest threat was to come along in 1996, when the devil facial tumour disease was discovered. Today, this contagious cancer is spreading rapidly and shows no sign of slowing down. And sadly, it's already taken 90% of Tasmania's wild population. I know this sounds pretty dire, but Tassie Devils do have some great people on their side, and there's definitely still hope for them. Take today's guest, for example, Tim Faulkner. He and his team are all working tirelessly to help this special marsupial overcome the odds. See, Tim works as the president of Aussie Ark, which has been working to save the Tassie Devil since 2011. And his expertise is so respected that he even received the Australian Geographic Conservationist of the Year Award a few years back. It's pretty safe to say that he's learned a thing or 500 about Tassie Devils and we're stoked to talk to him about them today. Hey, Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. G'day. Hey, so tell us about you. You specialise in endangered Australian animals. Why is the Tassie Devil so important to you? Oh, well, I, I guess just to hone right in on, on the devil itself, we engaged in it for, for a number of reasons. One, because it's the largest living carnivorous marsupial left on the planet. Two, because it had a disease that kind of bucks the trend of, of why most mammals are threatened. Um, you know, many of them overwhelmingly are because of feral pests like the fox and cat. And so the disease, we viewed it as, you know, there's a long-term outcome here that the environment in Tasmania is kind of okay for the devil. You know, it, um, it's not suffering from feral pests. It's, it's, it's not climate change. It's not pollution. It's not. And so there was real light at the end of the tunnel. And furthermore, by protecting the devil and ensuring that it has a place in the Tasmanian landscape, um, we all know the role of top-order predators, uh, and it brings balance to an entire ecosystem. And so there was a, you know, a byproduct effect that by protecting and securing a future for the devil, it also protected many other species as well. Tell us about the Aussie Ark Tassie Devil Project. It was set up in Barrington Tops in New South Wales, on the mainland of Australia where the devil has been extinct for 3,000 years. Why was this area chosen? Yeah, so the DFTD, Devil Facial Tumor Disease, was, was first found in 1996. By 2003, it had begun to decimate populations, and the uh, Tasmanian government response uh, engaged with the Zoo Aquaria Association and its members, uh, which we are one of. Mm. And so there was a program set up for a captive insurance population in response to the disease. Uh, and as a part of that, the first devils were received, the founders were received to mainland. We were, we were the very first organisation, along with four others, and they came in 2006. Now, the thing with devils, as is the case with, with many small marsupials, um, they're, they're boom-bust populations. And so with good reproductive success, 
the population grows very quickly because one female has four young every year for three years. Mm. And so um, it, it grows really, really quickly. Now, by 2009, the zoo industry was full with about 200 devils. And the big brains, the geneticists, told us that we need somewhere between 1,000 and 5,000 devils to have a really viable, genetically representative insurance population. They're also incredibly expensive to manage in a, a captive, intense type environment, like the reptile park or your traditional zoo management, because if you keep two devils, a male and a female, in a, a traditional zoo type enclosure, they don't breed, they don't get along. So you've really got to have an enclosure per animal and associated with that comes a loss of wild behavioural traits, poor reproductive output, lack of cost efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. And so with the belief in the devil, we went in search of land on a, on a pretty simple premise that, well, if they won't breed in a traditional zoo type enclosure, somewhere between that size and Tasmania, they will breed. And so we went in search of land and initially with an idea to, uh, to put them into mixed groups, males and females of up to 10 devils in any particular area. And around about six hectare was the size that we came up with. That's 12 football fields in size, heavily vegetated. Now, we went out in search of land and we ended up in the Barrington Tops. And it's just, it, it really is like a slice of Tasmania. It's high elevation. It goes through uh, multiple levels of, uh, at the very base on the eastern side is subtropical rainforest. Pop up above that, you go through wet eucalypt forest, dry eucalypt forest, and then up into subalpine. Um, and it really is just like Tassie. So for the devil, there couldn't have been a more suitable spot. Uh, and that was the beginnings of Devil Ark. And the easiest way of uh, explaining what Aussie Ark is, is on the success of Devil Ark, we created Aussie Ark, which essentially branched out into a range of other threatened uh, small mammals. Mm. So the goal of the project at the moment is to breed them in the Barrington Tops area and eventually re-release them in Tassie. How are things tracking so far? Look, for us, things are wonderful. We're, we're, you know, uh, we're incredibly cost efficient. We, Because of the natural type uh, space, the devils retain all of their wild behavioural traits and that's really, really important um, for, for the long-term goal of, of, of reintroduction to wild. Uh, reproductively, it's just phenomenal. They're given a bit of space, they do what they do best and, and, and so breeding has been uh, incredibly achieved. The thing for the long-term goals is that the disease is still an unknown. I mean, at this point in time, it hasn't caused absolute extinction. I mean, you've got a 90%. It's pretty catastrophic. Devil numbers have decreased significantly. But in terms of wild augmentation, so taking devils and releasing them back to a diseased landscape, it produces two conflicts. One is that you're exposing and putting a devil back into an area where it's going to get death by tumour. Mm. Um, and there are welfare concerns around that. And secondarily, if devils in the remaining little enclaves are developing some type of resistance or immunity to the disease and you go and augment with captive devils, you're prospectively feeding the disease rather than letting it run its course. So there are areas like Mariah Island, the Forest Air Peninsula, that have been destocked of, of devils, including diseased devils, uh, fenced or isolated by ocean like Mariah, mm. and they are areas that devils have been repopulated, and we send devils back to that regularly. But one of the continued core goals is to have a robust, genetically representative insurance population away from the disease landscape. And that goal hasn't changed. And, you know, if there comes a time in 10 years that it's not needed anymore because the devil has fixed itself in the wild, 
then we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But at the moment, it's really important to maintain that insurance population away from the disease landscape. It really is, just as it suggests, um, insuring against catastrophic or extinction of the devil in the wild. Mm. So over the years, you've got right in the thick of the action up close with the devils. Have you gotten to know any specific individual devils? Oh, absolutely. I mean, every year there are are individuals that you get to know. But, I mean, as the population grew from 6 to 20 to 50 to 100 to 150 and nearly 200 at a point, there are always standouts. And whether that's a little hand-reared devil that was, you know, found... uh, left aside by mum accidentally or devils that present with particular personalities or characteristics. Uh, for, for me in particular, about 2012, there was a little male devil that was found uh, through a, a routine pouch, t- pouch check and, and health inspection of one of the females. And he was really undersized compared to his three other siblings. And uh, and I hand-reared him and his name was Mirabuka. Now, the thing that I liked most about him was he was reared by himself, which is normally a no-no because they don't develop the social skills um, that they have with a sibling, etc. And so he <laughs> had a, a really strong personality. He was very fiery, obviously had very little fear of myself or, or, or other humans. And so he had a really strong spirit. And it was at the transition when we were moving from having, you know, 50 to 70 devils at Reptile Park managed individually and, Devil Ark had been completed, the first uh, 15, six-hectare enclosures. And so after he'd been at Reptile Park for three years, you know, a, a, a very captive devil that was largely diurnal instead of nocturnal, that was very confrontational and confident, opposed to timid and shy, uh, he was introduced into one of the breeding yards with eight other devils that had been wild-born, if you like, in the, in the, in the large landscape enclosures. And, you know, to our surprise, after three days, we never saw him again. <laughs> and, and when I say never saw him again, of course we picked him up on trail cameras and track. But, you know, it just really complemented the model of, of what Devil Ark was because you take a captive devil like that and put it into these enclosures and very quickly it slots back into the natural rhythm. And that was very exciting for me. And over the years, he went on to sire about 20 uh, offspring. And so it was a real success story as a means to, uh, to achieving the goals of what we were trying to do. It's pretty amazing. Would you say that that's been your most rewarding devil moment so far or is there another significant one that stands out to you? Oh, there's a significant hundred, really there is, and, and, and they're all as meaningful. I mean, in 2006, when we received the first eight devils, four females, four males, and they had all been wild caught and translocated for insurance population purposes. And the thing you have to see with devils, like a lot of small marsupials, they're not easy to breed. You don't throw two together, cross your fingers and hope for the best. It's really, I mean, you can do that in a wild type area. And that's the beauty of, of somewhere like Devil Ark. But the intensive management, which was all that was known at that point, you know, females come into estrus, their season, somewhere in February, they're in for three days. And you have to observe that based on a, a skill set and an observation skill set of uh, decreased appetite. Um, increased pouch secretions, increased activity levels, nesting behaviour. And if you get it wrong, you can really upset the female. She won't be comfortable in that yard. You could sustain injuries, etc. And so that first year, and devils had had a very poor history of reproduction, um, very difficult because of those challenges. And that first year, we had Blackie, Dottie, and who was the other female? I can't think of her name. <laughs> but... We bred three out of four of those females and each of them had four joeys each. And so 
you know, as a validation of what we were trying to do, what we were trying to achieve, um, the importance and significance of those wild founders and the sim- simply that they must be represented, that was a, a really significant achievement because I think back to that and think, well, what if no one had bred? We'd probably be in a very different position just based on that simple first initial outcome. So they're only in heat for three days. Yeah, that's right. So when they come into estrus, the females will go through a set of physical developments that include a deepening of the pouch, uh, pouch secretions in preparation for joeys, a thickening of the fat up around the neck where the male's going to bite on where they mate. And all of this has to be kind of anecdotally observed because if you go in and continually catch the female, you'll upset her from the nest boxes that she's chosen as maternal boxes and it can throw her right off. Uh, it can become really problematic. So she's also going to start nesting They'll go out and collect various amounts of material, fern, dry grass, etc., and begin to nest. And so once all these observations are made, same in the wild, she'll then come into estrus and what happens is a, a male in the wild would come along uh, or, or it has to be introduced in a captive environment. And But that by no means means that it's going to happen. It has to be the right male. She's going to put up a fight to test him. She wants to know that he's a robust, healthy, strong male, you know, the best for her young. And so in a captive environment, you can introduce the wrong male. You need multiple males to choose from. And it also is significantly governed by the age of the female versus the age of a male. A four-year-old female does not like a two-year-old male. Mm. She needs, she wants an experienced male that can really show her that he is um, top dog, so to speak. And if you breed them at first estrus, uh, it's only a 21-day gestation. So 21 days later, she gives birth to little joeys. If you miss first estrus or it was unsuccessful, she will come back into estrus about 55 days later, yeah. and that will be even shorter. you got about a two-day window. If you miss it or it's unsuccessful, she'll come back into estrus again for a third estrus, but that's almost impossible to observe. It's known that they do, but it, it gets really challenging because it's so quick and it's a really, a really short estrus. So all of that, is, is also a part of why we had to find an alternative like Devil Art that, we're, like I said, they, you can put them into a wild space and they do breed. They do retain the wild behavioural traits. It is cost-effective, et cetera. Um, and as the years went by from 2006 to 7, 8, 9, 10, that was when we, we really needed to create something like Devil Art. It's fascinating behaviours. I had no idea about that. That's amazing. Such yeah. a short window of opportunity for you guys. What are some of the other interesting behaviours or surprising behaviours you came across during your up-close encounters with them? Yeah, well, the thing is that it's the case with a lot of Australian animals and it's why we have so many problems with feral pests like the fox and cat. I mean, Australia was isolated from the rest of the world for a very long time. And when you go up to uh, Papua New Guinea, West Papua, or the Kimberley region of Australia – you throw a rock across the pond, you know, over to Indonesia, Sumatra, Borneo, etc. And when that rock hits the ground across the pond, you've got bears, cats, dogs, primates, rodents. It's just crazy. Mm. And all the placental mammals. And the thing with those placentals across basically the rest of the world is that they were always in competition with each other and that seemingly has created a higher intelligence. Come to Australia, uh, we lived in isolation and our, our mammals in particular – I mean, a, a devil has a, a head twice the size of a fox, but its brain is one-third the size of a fox. Mm. And I like to think rather than animals being silly or stupid or, or unintelligent, that they actually just evolved in a bit of an idealistic place. And 
their evolutionary processes drove them for uniqueness rather than intelligence and in a harsh country like Australia. And so I guess when you compare something like a devil to a dog, there's no, you know, a devil will never chase a ball, if you like, and bring it back. But what they lack in that higher intelligence, they make up for, in my opinion, with just a great sense of character. And devils themselves have really unique personalities. If you pick up a wild devil, it typically freezes upon contact. They're really shy and timid, elusive in the wild. But you can also get devils that are um, cunning and bold and confrontational. And even just simply from male to female, they're really different. I mean, the female is always the boss, smaller than the male, um, but always really dominant. And then you come in with that and devils have up to 25 known different vocalizations. And if you know them, you can read it and see it really easily. Um, they'll have curious calls. They'll have confrontational calls. They'll have, you know, obviously aggressive calls. And, and, and we see those calls as, I guess, noisy and offensive. And But, you know, they're low to the ground. Their eyesight's quite poor. Their sense of smell is incredible. Their whiskers are sensitive. And between their vocalizations, most of what we see and think is confrontation, it's just them having a conversation. And if you watch a group of 10 devils together, let's say at a feeding event, it is incredibly coordinated and calculated. There is an absolute hierarchy and everyone knows everyone else's place within that enclosure. Um, and I've really fallen in love with that uh, because the, the, the more you know about it, the more you can understand it. And in that case, it's a really unique set that they do because Obviously, it's really hard to observe that with a little native mouse or a kookaburra or a koala. And I really find the devils really fulfilling because of that. What will happen to the ecosystem in general if the devils don't make it? Oh, look, I mean, there's, I, I just switch over to the dingo and just explain it like this because it's really easy to, to understand. So the dingo arrived in Australia thousands of years ago. And at that point, it seemingly replaced um, and removed, you know, thylacines, Tassie devils, etc. And it's top order predator within the ecosystem. Now, if you go out to Central Australia, there are vast studies done north of the dingo fence, south of the dingo fence. So where dingoes exist, small mammals and vertebrate fauna in general and flora really benefit. Now, what happens is, it's well known that where you have dingoes as top order predators you have a significantly decreased population of fox and cats, if any, because the dingo views them as a threat and it removes them from the environment. Now, so what that means is that you've got fox and cats are responsible for 92% of Australian mammal extinctions and we've got the worst mammal extinction rate on earth. So by having a dingo in a top order predator role, you have a decreased presence of the fox and cat, which means now you've got your vertebrate fauna in a better condition and then you might think, well, why don't the dingoes eat those small things? Well, dingoes hunt in packs, and the reality is they want to take down things like kangaroos and emus. Um, they, they hunt large prey. So by hunting that large prey, they also um, decrease the pressure onto the native flora, and the environment is richer. So you've got dingoes in a top-order predator role, maintaining herbivore populations, decreasing pressure on the environment, at the same time keeping the feral pests out of that environment, which has a greater benefit from everything from geckos to frogs, ground birds, birds, and small mammals. So if you go to Tassie and have a look, one of the simple things that has been observed is the decreased devil population uh, has seen an increase in feral cats. Uh, we all know what that means. The things from little 
pygmy possums to long-tailed mice, you know, both Tasmanian endemics, um, pressure on eastern quolls. And then you've got the herbivores will increase in population without any, any predators or carrion eaters. And so you've got an absolute pressure on the environment and where that starts and ends is unknown to me, but it puts pressure on the environment and ecology overall. And it's just, it's so well known that if you remove a top order predator, you have collapse. And, and I use the dingoes because it's such an easy example. You can imagine that dingoes are eating kangaroos and emus, which less pressure on the environment. Dingoes are keeping foxes and cats out of a particular area, which means it's easier um, for survivorship of the small mammals and other things, it's such an easy picture to imagine. And it's the exact same case with the devil in Tassie. Hmm. Given all the hard work that you guys are doing, would you say that you're optimistic about the devil's future? Oh, yeah, I am. I guess the, the, the thing is that, you know, I guess the disease, if you view it a little like a wildfire in that, you know, it's a density-related thing and it's going to burn really hot and consume all of its fuel. But like a fire, there might be some wet gullies, some little enclaves that have got some resistance to that fire or the disease. And that's kind of what's happening is, you know, there was catastrophic dis- decline, but devils are still persisting in the landscape at a, at a density of, you know, 1% to 3% in some areas, but they're still there. And so it really is a case that time will tell. There are other options and opportunities for us, like managing devils in large spent sanctuaries. You know, 3,000 years they were on mainland. It's a blink of an eye in terms of mainland ecology. And the reality is, I mentioned about dingoes before. I mean, Australia is at war with dingoes. They don't get along with agriculture. Um, They attack people, you know, very rarely, but it gets so sensationalised. So the reality is, across Australia, dingoes are being annihilated and fox and cats are continuing their presence, annihilating our native wildlife. And so even in fenced sanctuaries, if devils can be used as a top-order predator to complement the suite of fauna, like in the Barrington Tops, I mean, Barrington has largely lost its small mammal fauna. It's a ghost town. You only see fox and cat, rabbit, hare, pig, horse, and then you've got the natives that are too big for the fox and cat to eat. And, and the abundance of herbivores like wallaroos, grey kangaroos, swamp wallabies, redneck wallabies and wombats, all too big for, for, uh, for fox and cat to eat, um, something has to balance that out. And so missing is the potteroo, the bandicoot, the bedong, um, the brush-tailed rock wallaby, the eastern quoll, etc. They're all gone. Mm. And so using devils in a capacity like that within a fenced area could still be hugely advantageous. And if the devils in the wild have a, a you know a decreased need for an insurance population at any point. I don't think we'll ever remove that um, until there's no such thing as a disease left. But we can change direction. I mean, we started off Devil Ark in a 35 hectare area. Um, it was six kilometres of fencing. Since 2010 to now, we've run 30 kilometres of fencing. We've just fenced in our, our first 400 hectare sanctuary. And right as we speak, we're starting on a 500 hectare across the road. Mm. And that'll see us go from managing devils for an insurance population um, up at the Ark now. We've got seven threatened mammals, uh, aside from the devil, the others in New South Wales and used to be found in the Barringtons. And so moving from the pioneering success of managing devils how we did and utilising that for quolls, bandicoots, bedongs, potteroos, wallabies, it's really exciting time for us because we want outcomes. We've got access to land. We just need funding to build fences. And, you know, fences come with this connotation of captivity. You have to see a fence is much kinder than a fox or a cat. The fence is there to keep the ferals out, not to keep the natives in. And people really need to understand that 
it's no different than an island. Um, an island is surrounded by a sea. It's the same barrier, a fence and island, same thing. And we've got to get a little more used to that because without a silver bullet solution for the fox and cat, which we don't have, um, fences are a very necessary tool for, for protecting and preserving our, our native fauna at this point in time. Mm. Well, thank you so much for all the hard work that you guys are doing. It's incredible the successes you're having and we'll continue to check in with you as you go forward. Thanks so much for your time today, Tim. All the best. Bye for now. Thanks. If you'd like to find out more about Aussie Ark or help support their Tassie Devil breeding program, it'd be very much appreciated. Simply head to www.aussieark.org.au for more. And check out Tim on Instagram at Tim's Wildlife. I'll post the links on pornographic.com and catch you next week.